scripture reading will be in Jeremiah 29. We're not going to start in verse 11. I know a lot of you were thinking it. We're actually going <clears> to <throat> go right before that. And I'd like to start in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to, to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Yeah, thank you, as Todd said, is just nourishment to our soul, God. We want to not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we pray as we see you back in Jeremiah and the word that you've sent to exiles there in Babylon, God, that we would take the truth and the principle of your character, of your word, and how we are to live before you in moments of similarity for us. And Father, may we just seek to walk with you humbly, pure of heart, God, that we would not just take the word and hear it this morning, but that we would be doers of it, each of us be practicing just the gift that the Spirit of God has given to us as we apply your word into the lives in various communities and ministries and uh, opportunities that you have around us. Lord, by your Spirit, would you show us how to do that in what way we can be of profit, God, while we are here in this world, a part of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to give that brief introduction of not Jeremiah 29.11 because uh, I was telling some people recently, recently that we had the students, the first years do uh, their speaking methods class, and if you're alumni, you will remember that fondly with joy. You probably all remember what you did your speaking methods uh, devotion on. And it was a verse that I, I mean, I'm, I don't know about you guys first years, I don't know if you all took notice of it, but I certainly did. Uh, I think out of the 53 students we had, maybe at least 20 to 25 people used this verse. You know, I like to think of it as like the, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's just the one that you, you memorized, you know. If you have Instagram, maybe it's on your Instagram bio. I don't know. It's, maybe it's your life verse. Uh, it, that's a verse that, that we are very familiar with. Um, and the, the truth of that, of, of really who God is, that his plans are good, and, and we'll talk about that. But um, this, the verses that I read were actually brought to my attention by my faithful wife, 
one day I, I came home from work, and she said, have you ever read Jeremiah 29? I was like, yeah, verse 11. You know, I know the plans that God asked me. <laughs> She's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But have you read, like, what's before that? And I was like, no. <laughs> I've never read, actually, that, that, well, I mean, I probably read the chapter, but I've never stopped to take notice of it. And she's like, look at, look at what it says. And so she starts, you know, going through it and these, this, what we really we want, what I want to talk about uh, today. And, and I thought it was so good and so rich and I had never seen that before. And as she walks down the aisle just to give attention to her, that uh, she really is, uh, <laughs> really is the reason why this has been on my heart. And so um, I really just want to praise God for the faithful women of scripture. You know, you have the Hannahs, the Abigails, the Mary, the Elizabeths, but you also have the Jewels and uh, the women of this church and uh, just what the Lord is doing in your life and the impact that you have on us is uh, tremendous. It's really something that God has been teaching me a lot and hope I can communicate this to you in a, a simple way in which reflects Christ. So, Let's uh, come back to the word here, Jeremiah 29. We're going to also be uh, flipping to the New Testament a little bit, into Philippians and 1 Timothy, so you can have your, uh, your finger there. But just the first two observations I just want to make here, very, very simple, um, and it's this. Starting in verse 4, God is speaking to the exiles, so those who have been taken into captivity away from their homeland. Uh, exile is a word that we, if you're reading from the, the NESB, uh, you're not going to have that word in the, in the New Testament, but the ESV does in Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2, where it's uh, exchanged for strangers, sojourners, aliens, um, fugitives, not fugitives, uh, there's, there's another word there, and then you have exile. So all those words kind of have commonality, strangers, sojourners, Aliens, not the extraterrestrial, but the one, you know, that's, this is not your home. They are in a place, they are in a land that is not their home. God did not rescue them out of Egypt to bring them into Babylon, but into the promised land. They're exiles here. And how did that happen? It says to the exiles, whom I have sent. This isn't something that has happened to these people in which is outside of the plan of God, outside the hand of God. Actually, this was the very plan and purpose of God to bring them there after their disobedience, after their purposeful um, setting up of idols, setting up of different images that they worshiped after God has said, do not forget to remember the Lord your God who rescued you. I am the one that will bring you to this land. I will the one that will fulfill my promise to you. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to chase after our own flesh, after our own desires, after our own heart. And, uh, and God says, then I will discipline sin. I have to. I have to discipline sin. I cannot allow for this to remain because it is not bringing life to you. You are being enslaved to this idolatry, enslaved to your flesh. And in discipline, God says, I'm going to take you out of the land for a season. Now we know just to fast forward, God is going to remain true to his word. He's going to bring them back. He says 
in verse 10, after 70 years are completed, I will bring you back. This isn't punishment. This isn't saying, listen, you had it, now you lost it. You had your shot, you missed it, and now it's done. He's saying, no, you were in the land, you walked away from me, and to get your attention, to bring you back to me, I'm going to go outside of your expectations, and I'm going to do something in this time for this generation that you could have never seen coming. I'm going to take you out of the land. I'm going to let the Babylonians, this year, I'm going to let them come in, I'm going to let them take you away into captivity, but I will bring you back. That's the full circle of discipline. That's the kind of the difference between discipline and punishment, right? There's going to be a way forward. It's not just assessing sin and bringing about due discipline or due law. It's saying, this is what you've done, and this is the consequence of it, but the, actually we're going to move forward from that as I bring you back into the land there. So one, this is something that God has done. It's something that God has initiated to get his people's attention, and he is doing it through discipline. Not through the great God of love, right, that we, we speak about, the great God of grace. He is grace. He is love as he disciplines, as he gives a hard word. And that's a, that's a hard you know, season as a, as a parent now. That's something that Jewel and I are really experiencing, how to love our children by disciplining them. You know, how to communicate that I love you as I have to assess and I have to respond to your disobedience. You know, and it's, it's part of those growing years. Uh, scripture says that it's good. If a father does not discipline his son, he does not love him. Right? And so I'm, I'm in that season with Callum where we are disciplining him, and I, I grab his little face and those massive blue eyes where I try to like avert, you know, not look at me. And I'm like, Calum, I love you so much because I know if I allow this sin to remain in your heart, it is hurting you. It's going to rot you from the inside out. And I do, if, if I want anything, it is not that in your life. Now, we also know I've been uh, using this verse a lot because discipline is something that Jewel and I are talking about quite a bit. And, you know, we have three kids in about three years. And so all this is very new and all of them are different. And uh, something we're seeking, you know, wisdom in a lot is just asking the Lord. And I think of that verse in Hebrews says, Fathers, earthly fathers discipline their children as what seems best to them in the moment. With the reality of, we don't really know if this is working <laughs> right now. We don't really know if this is getting or communicating the right uh, message. You know, we don't know if, if as we practice this, if, if, if really Calum is, or Brielle, you know, is understanding this. <laughs> the other day, I, I had Calum, and he had disobeyed. It's probably something about whacking Joel in the face or something like that. And uh, so I take him in and, you know, I explain to him what he did and, and then what the consequence is. And I said, you know, I have to give you a spank. And he looked at me and said, no, two spanks. <laughs> two spanks. I was like, is this not effective? <laughs> is this not the right way? You're asking for more. You know, it's one of those moments of like, God, do I need to do something else? Like, is this the not the right way of communication? I was like, no, God. I'm, like, I'm only going to give you one. I guess you can call it grace. You know, that we're going to give you one spank instead of two. Is this working? God's, that verse in Hebrews goes on to say, but God's discipline is always 
right. It's always good and it is perfect. He knows in his discipline what will get our attention and what will really turn our eyes to see sin for what it is and to see his holiness for what it is. And then the, then the question is, will we let that discipline abide in our heart? Will we allow it to have a place? He says, if it does, if you allow it to have a place in your heart, then there will be the peaceful seed of righteousness that will grow and will bear much fruit if we allow discipline to have its place. Not to reject it, not to run away from it, right? not to escape it, but to allow it to have its place. It will bear much fruit. What does that fruit look like in a moment of discipline in exile to the people of God? It's actually remarkably normal. That's what I want to bring our attention to here in Jeremiah. He says in verse 5, the, the second thing, so it's God's word speaking to his people. He's not forgotten his people. He's not just left them there. He's actually communicating to his people while they're in exile here, while their expectations are completely out of whack of what God is doing. He speaks to them with words of encouragement and exhortation how to receive discipline and to bear fruit. And he says in verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and bear children. Have your children take wives and husbands and let them bear children generationally. Multiply and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city that you are in and pray for that city's welfare. It's actually remarkably normal is in what they would be doing if they were in Israel. The same things. Build houses, live in them, enjoy that blessing of shelter, plant gardens, cultivate your gardens and eat their produce, take wives, right? And just thus bring about generational change and, and descendants of God's people, seek the welfare of your city and pray for it. So while, while you're in exile, while you are in discipline, do what is natural. Do what is the next thing. And that is supernaturally impossible. It is impossible. While in such adversity, to do, to carry on my life as I normally would, as if I'm in a season of blessing and goodness, as if I'm in the land again. It's supernaturally normal and impossible to do in the flesh. The verb that you know, the God's using here is build, plant, marry, multiply, pray. This is all verbs that are cultivating life and godliness. By abiding in what God has for us right now. Not, that's not to come later. That's not what we used to do. It's right now. In adversity, in trial, in pain. There is something supernatural about abiding in that normalcy in the midst of that adversity. Doing the next thing might be the hardest of all of our efforts. And yet it's here that God really begins to show himself to us and also through us. So only God, the one true God of power, the one true God of ability can cultivate a garden in such crisis and exile such as this.
Now, I mentioned to you in the, in the New Testament, NASB, you're not going to see the word exile at all in that passage uh, or any passages there. Uh, it doesn't come up once. So what would be a New Testament kind of correlation to exile, something that we might understand a little bit? In the New Testament, I think that word would rightfully be prison. Prison. Something that God allows, we know, for the early church to go through. Something that happened to them, not necessarily maybe to get their attention and discipline, but something that God allowed, and it was not right or good in its you know, natural sense. Prison's not a fun place to be. You don't want to you know, go to prison and find yourself there with a smile on your face. But it is a season what God allowed his people to go through. We know Peter, John, Stephen, definitely Paul underwent that. And what was their perspective? While they were in that season of hardship, of something that was done to them that they didn't expect, right? They're preaching the gospel of life, and what do they get for that? Chains. Okay? Not what you expect, but something that happened to them nonetheless, something that God allowed nonetheless. Recently, if you were at our uh, Thanksgiving conference, Peter Reed was speaking on Paul's prison ministry. I think that was the title. He was just really talking a lot about Jesus, and so it's kind of hard to find exactly what that theme was, but it was, it was basically Paul, prison, Jesus. It's kind of the three correlating things that kind of kept swirling around. And uh, what was related in that to us that Jewel and I really felt, you know, really responded to is he, uh, he asked this question kind of right in the middle of it. And he just said, what feels like a prison to you right now? What feels like a prison? If you want to go, what feels like a time of exile where you're not in the land? You're not doing what you expected to be doing. Or life isn't going the way you expected it to be going. What's an exile? What's a, what's a prison for you? If I can just be really honest with you guys. I'll tell you, a prison for us is child-rearing. If you haven't heard any of my messages and what my examples are and the difficulties it is, early, young, baby child-rearing is not Jewel and I's natural love. We don't breathe babies. Uh, you know, Jewel comes from a large Mennonite family. That can either go one of two ways. Either I want to replicate that in my life or I want to run from that in my life. Uh, it's usually that, those the two responses from the Mennonite background. And she was on the run from that side of things. You know, baby's not something that we you know, necessarily loved. And my sister, who's 27 maybe, something like that, uh, was the youngest in our family. And so I never was around babies. No one really had babies when we, I was at Bible school. And so babies are foreign objects to me. Um, <laughs> scary things in my life, you know, that when I first came into it. And you know if you've had babies or if you've seen babies or if you're students and you've seen Jewel and I, right, they require a lot of attention. There's, there's crying, there's sleeping, there's feeding. It's, it's just constant. Then you have three and three years, and all of a sudden, we weren't playing volleyball as much as we would like to. All of a sudden, we weren't going on dates as much as we would like to. All of a sudden, I can't just pick up and you know, answer Tylen's text to go play golf as much as I want to. Right? All of a sudden, there's a lot of things where we realize we are not doing that we would love to be doing right now. 
And it's easy to look at those children and say, it's your fault. <laughs> this is because of you. <laughs> it's hard to do that when you look at Joel's little face, you know. Because then you realize when you look at children and you're with them, it's simultaneously that God never speaks one negative word about a child. They're never a burden to him. They're never an issue to him. You know, even in the time when, with, in the Egyptians, in the time of exile, you could call it, uh, slavery that the people of Israel were in, where the midwives were not getting there fast enough to, you know, get, get to the Hebrew women who were having birth, who were, who were, yeah, giving birth to the kids. It said God saw their faithfulness, and in the time of persecution, he multiplied their families as a gift to them. He multiplies their families. I'm reading my personal time in Genesis, you know, looking at Sarah and Hagar, and, you know, Hagar, the, the father, also the mother of many nations, the eastern nations, and he says God is good to her, and he multiplies her descendants in his grace. Right? He does uh, just the same to Ahimelech there in the beginning. He multiplies his family. Children are always seen as a gift. So it's not that in reality they're not, that they are a prison. They're not a prison. So actually the problem is not necessarily what I think is my problem. The problem rather is my perspective. That is my greatest issue in life, is my perspective on what God brings into my life or what he allows to take place in my life is my perspective on it. And there are often three perspectives that are cultivated from the flesh. If we just allow ourselves to respond immediately to this problem, and the perspective that had is either one of, of three things I'll quickly just work through and to show you what God's Word says that's actually not the case here in this uh, section of Jeremiah and also in His Word. The first one is so often, woe is me. Man, that's not fair. That's not right. I look at other people in their life. I see what they're doing. I see what's happening with them, right? Am I being abused here? What's going on with me? And it's, it's, it's pity is what it is. It's pity. And pity leads to complaining. And Scripture says complaining really is the fruit of anxiety. Anxiety. I appreciate one of our guest speakers uh, who used to come he says, anxiety is the logical consequence of believing that God has let me down. It's the logical consequence of believing that God has let me down or God has failed me. And so from anxiety breeds depression, depression breeds death. I'm sorry, sin and sin breeds death. It's why Paul has to supernaturally command the Philippian church to not grumble or dispute. He has to command it in Philippians chapter 2. Because if he didn't, he knows the fruit of the flesh is to complain, is to say, woe is me, is to say, I wish I was doing what that person is doing. right? And it's believing that God is not for me, that God is not walking with me, that God doesn't know what he is doing in my life. And so he has to say to the Philippian church and to us as a church in general, do nothing. Do not complain. Do not grumble ever. It's an absolute statement. 
that he gives there. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's what it says. And then in chapter 4, he follows it up. It's not just abstaining from grumbling, right? It's not just like shoving it under the rug, you know, and just canning it. He says, actually, I want you to go one step further. And in chapter 4, he says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. It would be impossible enough to never complain, to never dispute, to never wish something was different in my life. That would be enough (laughs) for a lifetime. And then God ups the ante one more. And he says, actually, take that thought captive and then do. What are we to do? Pray without ceasing. In everything giving thanks. Making our requests known to God. Letting our heart be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that is what Paul not only says to the Philippians, it's what he demonstrates to the Philippians in his writing. He says in, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. I'm so confident in that. Look at my surroundings right now. I'm in chains to this guard, and yet I don't see it as captivity. I see it as an opportunity. He says, actually, now I have a captive audience. Right? I'm not their captive. They're mine. <laughs> and, the, the, and the gospel is actually progressing here. And that gives you more courage in how you think of it. He says in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. Even if the greatest scheme of the enemy did come to fruition, death, that's gain for me. He said, that'd be better for me, actually. (laughs) I would prefer to die. But actually, it's more of a sacrifice if I live and and to continue on with you. And so that's what I think God wants me to do. I think I'm going to keep on living as a sacrifice for you all. (laughs) Who says that? (laughs) That is more of a sacrifice to live than it is to die. That is the supernatural change of heart that God has done while he is in prison, while he is in a moment and time of, of adversity. He says, I think it's 12 times in the book of Philippians, either rejoice or joy. And he says in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Just in case you missed it. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. And he he ends that section in chapter 4 saying, because I know that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. What God can do in captivity far surpasses our wildest expectations. He does not need us to get out, to to, to complain about it in order to experience his goodness. No, actually, he needs us to take those thoughts captive to abide in the Lord, which is not, that's, that's normal Christianity. In adversity, to choose to be thankful for what God is doing in my life, and to continue to build, to continue to plant, to continue to pray, to continue to seek the betterment of those around me. That's not radical. That's normal Christianity. That's the life of Christ on display. The second idea you know, that he doesn't say in this chapter is, has, hey guys, listen, 70 years of captivity is coming your way. Just get through it. 
don't worry, I'm gonna come back. So just kind of put your heads down, you know, hit the grindstone and just make it happen. 70 years is a lifetime for some. It's a whole generation for most of us. And he doesn't say simply endure it. Just get through it. I was telling the students the other day, I, I, I found very quickly, dating Jewel, that winters in Winnipeg show me very quickly how strong my endurance is not. Because we would always work at camp together, we never, I never got to really visit her in the summer very often, but my longest break was always in winter. And so we would try to make a deal of like, hey, maybe sometimes you can come down here for winter, but more, more than not, her parents wanted me to come up there. And so at least for a week or two, I'd go up there, usually in the beginning, and she still had university. And uh, some of the students, because my wife, uh, as I've already mentioned, is Mennonite, she's very frugal. She never wanted to uh, pay the $2 to pay, to pay the $2 to be in the Toonie lot at university when we would go to university together. And so we would park free parking, which meant we were walking in negative 40 degrees, wind chill of like negative 50, about a mile to her university. And so what we would do is called the head down, butt out run. We just put our hoods up. Right? You just get down and you just run. But that air is so cold, it burns your lungs within like the first couple strides, and you have this headache because it's a brain freeze. Not because of what you've ingested, just it's just cold. Like your head's just frozen. It's literal brain freeze there. And you quickly find out you're you're delirious. You don't really know where you're running, you know. You thought you were in shape, you thought you were playing sports, you quickly find out, no, Winnipeg will zap it out of you very quickly. You cannot even endure a mile there in that present circumstances. It's amazing how quickly our present circumstances show us how great our endurance is not. How good and how strong our endurance is not. Our strength fails. We fall short. Again, our, our greatest adversity is not, do I have enough endurance to get through something? Again, it's the perspective of my problem, that I actually think I have to endure it to get through it, that there's life just by enduring it. That's where there is issue. We're in Jeremiah. Let's flip over just a couple, I'm sorry, just one prophet over to Isaiah while we're so close. I was reading this again. as Isaiah 40, speaking of endurance. I didn't grow up memorizing these verses. I didn't, uh, was not a part of Awana programs or uh, youth group programs. And so for some, these will be like, oh, I, yeah, I, I live on these verses. I've, I've grown up with these verses. We always talk about these verses. For, for me, these are still very, my eyes still see these in so, such a clear way. And I just want to just ex- exhort you to really meditate on what God is saying here about our strength in comparison to his. He says, starting in verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, 
And vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, run and not get tired, and walk and not become weary. This is the exchange of life that is offered to us as we wait on the Lord. Not do nothing and wait for God just to do it all, but as we walk in the strength of his might, as we choose to take our thoughts captive and abide in him, new strength is produced. And we are able to continue in exile or in these prisons living lives, quote-unquote, that are normal. And it's in that people wonder. It's in that the angels are in awe of. Not that we've done something supernatural, not that we've done a miracle, but that we had the faith to remain and to abide in the Lord while in adversity. That we chose to cling to the promise of God when it did not make sense according to our own expectations. I want to just look at the third option here, and that is the idea that I've mentioned is to escape exile, to escape prison. Maybe you've seen Prison Break, right? Maybe you've seen The Great Escape. Great movies, great shows, all fun. But that was all to escape some sort of injustice that was done to them. But what about when God purposefully brings you into these moments? Is that still the right thing to do? To escape? You know, for Paul, for Peter, for uh, John, and you know, when they were brought to prison in the book of Acts, it was for nothing that they did against the law. Jesus, right? Whatever he did was not against the law and when he was brought into captivity. And none of them ever exemplified any kind of attitude which said, I need to escape this. They weren't looking for trapdoors. They weren't carving out with a little plastic spoon in the ground. Actually, in Acts 16, it says that Paul and Silas were praying, singing praises to their God, just expressing the heart of trust in a moment of adversity because they understood to escape is actually to imprison myself further. To escape this time, to try to get out of this time, is actually to just impoverish myself. It is to cripple myself further because they understood that God's will in Romans 12, 2 says this, that his will is good, acceptable, and perfect always, even if that is in prison, even if that is in exile. His will is good, perfect, and acceptable. Why escape a good, perfect, acceptable will for my own that I have no idea what the consequences will be? They remained there. So what's the right choice then? If it's not complaining, if it's not enduring, if it's not escaping, in the moments of the flesh, what does the Spirit remind us to do? A couple weeks ago, Lugi came up and was speaking at a Sunday night service. And it was good for me to be there because I had Lugi as a second year. And he was my teacher. 
And we had just, me and Ryan had some great times with him and just sitting under his teaching and just talking about life together. But it was always some of the illustrations that caught me off guard <laughs> with Louie. And they were always so uh, just easy to relate to. And there was an illustration that he made about a rat and a plane. And I never heard this one in my years at his hill with him. And so I give credit where credit is due to Lugie on this, but it has really uh, stuck in my mind a lot. And it was about this, I, this guy in the very beginning when the planes were just becoming operational, still very mechanical, not as technology-oriented as they are now. Autopilot was not a thing. And so you had the strings that were attaching to the joystick and the rudders, and you know, if you pull one, you could literally look back and see how it was operating the plane. So the pilot gets up into the air, and he feels something on the joystick. It's kind of shaking. It's kind of a, you know, scratching, and he, he's looking around, sees nothing on the joystick. So he looks in the back, right, where he sees the open cockpit completely exposed, and he sees a massive rat on there chewing these cords or chewing these ropes there. And he thinks to himself, well, I could let go of the joystick, climb in the back, grab the rat, throw it off the plane. Problem solved. But then the joystick has no autopilot. And so he would go down and crash, burn, and die while also killing the rat in the process. That's option one. Second option, he could say, well, it's not actually that big of a problem. I'm just going to believe that this rat is, is not as hungry as he thinks and you know, not as determined as he is. And I'm just going to remain. I'm just going to grab the joystick. I'm just going to ride this thing out. You know, whatever happens. But we know mice and we know rats. They are the most determined creatures in the world. If they are chewing on something, they will find its completion, right? And so if he was to do that, then he would surely lose control. The rat would chew through the rope and the cord. He would go down, have no more joystick control when he tries to land, and he would crash, burn, and there's death there. But he's a smart pilot, and he remembers something about this world that God created. He says, the higher you go, the more altitude you gain, the colder the air becomes. And so he ascends. And in his ascension, the air gets colder, and he regains control of the joystick, and he looks back, and he sees the rat has frozen. Problem solved. The answer was to ascend. The answer was to ascend. Colossians chapter 3 says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on the things above. It's the ascended perspective that allows us to abide to bear fruit, to build houses, to do what is normal in the midst of exile and prison. To live life doing the next thing that is supernaturally normal only comes by the perspective that sees, that fixes on, that abides in Christ. You have died. And dead people don't escape. Dead people don't complain. Dead people do not simply endure, for they are dead. It is the life of Christ which is at work in us. When that 
is cultivated. Not only do we remain true to the promises of God, but we remain as ambassadors of that one true living God while in prison, while in exile. Philippians, or Acts chapter 16 speaks of that, that, the, that the, when the prison gates were open and God supernaturally broke them out, all the prisoners remained as they were so affected by the prayer, by the singing of Paul and Silas praying to their God. They were changed in that moment as ambassadors. That's the opportunity that is at stake. That's the opportunity that God can, can cultivate even in the midst of adversity. I was recently sitting with uh, my mom and Alan at this financial um, investment dinner. We basically piggybacked off them. We're basically this company's charity case uh, to say, we do good for the community. Look how we help Connor and Jewel, right? Uh, and so we get invited to this dinner. Uh, happens twice a year, and uh, we're sitting at this dinner. I pull out the seat, and I'm sitting next to a stranger I've, I've never met before, and it's a you know, good Southern person and a Christian. I you know, introduce myself, ask him how you're doing, and I ask some questions kind of to get to know him. Apparently, this guy... I looked up later, he ain't no little thing. This guy worked for J.P. Morgan, one of the major financial firms within the United States, and he ran a lot of their business opportunities, basically from Colorado down to North Carolina, which is a massive section of the United States. <laughs> I didn't quite uh, put together until later. Like, actually, that's like almost half the United States. And so uh, operating in this business, and he was so personal, and, and so we kind of got to talking a little bit more, and I forget how it came up, but he said, you know, the guy that, I, that, that, that we represent who's worth the most is worth $22 billion. $22 billion. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm close to that, but I, I can't quite, <laughs> you know, connect to $22 billion. Um, and so I'm like, wow, okay. He says, you know, as, you're, as we're seeing on this the display here, 2022 wasn't a great year financially. He said he lost $4 billion in the process of this year. Worth $22 billion, he lost $4 billion. I cannot compute, <laughs> you know, losing $4 billion. But what is even more incredible to me, he said, you know, when we first met together, he only had one question for me, and that was this. Where is the opportunity in this? He said, that's the difference between your everyday kind of day trading guy and the guys that really are worth the most. Even when there's crisis, when they lose $4 billion, the question that's first and foremost in their mind is this, where is the opportunity in this? And I thought about that, and I've really been chewing on that. Where's the opportunity? Because there always is. God is always redeeming. God is always cultivating. God is always making things new. Where's the opportunity? That's the question I want to have on my mind when I'm in these seasons with these babies, when I'm in these seasons right in fill in the blank with you, to ask the Lord, but God, where's the opportunity in this that the life of Christ can be manifested and the life of Christ can be exemplified in a way which is not what I expected, but that you would bear much fruit through. Where's the opportunity? I want to come full circle and mention what Peter Reed 
finished, as I begin to finish here, with his sessions and Thanksgiving. He had a quote that I've written down I want to share. He says, Learn to live within your limitations and to accept them in this moment, for this is the most effective place to be in God's economy. Learning to live within our limitations because that is where the most effective place for you is to be. Because God has done it, and if God has brought you there, then it will be God's supply who will perfect it. I think what this, the word that comes to mind when I was thinking about all this this morning, finishing all this, is the word contentment. Contentment. Contentment does what is normal in a crisis. Contentment breeds life and cultivates life when around me is death. Contentment is at peace, is at rest, though I'm surrounded by my enemies, Psalm 23 says. That's contentment. 1 Timothy, just to read a quick couple verses here. Chapter 6 says, verse 6, but godliness is actually it, sorry, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take need, nothing, anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Isn't that what God says that to do there in Jeremiah? Build houses, live in them, plant your garden so you can eat it, and you can be content. He doesn't say godliness is actually great gain when you have freedom from slavery, freedom from exile, freedom from prison. Godliness is not a means of great gain when you have more money, when you have a better job. Godliness is not great gain when I'm able to do what I want, when I want to do it. Godliness, when the life of Christ is manifested, when contentment is brought about in our heart. <coughs> And Philippians speaks to that very thing. So in conclusion, I want to read what Paul says here in chapter 4. While in his prison, he says in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. And content just simply means not wishing. The absence of wishing. That's contentment. Not wishing that things would be different. Not wishing for greener pastures. But it is abiding in where the Lord has me right now and living life that's normal. That is only what the supernatural life of Christ can do in me, as he says in verse 13, that I can do all these things. I can be content in all these things, whether a lot or a little. I can do all this through him who strengthens me. So I want to just exhort you and encourage you not just to recognize your prisons, not just to recognize your, your seasons of exile. Hopefully being here at Bernie Bible in this sermon is not an exile or a prison to you but that you would, in these seasons, 
cultivate a perspective that God has brought God has brought me here. God has allowed this to happen. God has initiated this in my life. It's a season. God's going to come back. God's going to redeem and make new all things. The end of that section said. And within that constant change of seasons, there is the changeless one. And to abide in him will breed contentment in our hearts that we may be ambassadors of Christ in every season, in every possession that we're given, in truly all things. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for both sections of it, old and new, that just remind our heart and really exhort our heart to look to you, God, to be able to be the one who not only calls but also fulfills, who brings and makes new all things. God, who is constant, who is changeless, who is consistent and faithful, and often our flesh's faithlessness. God, I pray that we would not escape, endure, complain about whatever season that we find ourselves in, Lord, but by the Spirit of God living in each of us, and to remind each other, God, that we would have the perspective that, uh, that allows our eyes to ascend to heaven and seize you, to truly remain and abide in you. God, in return, that you would bear the fruit of contentment in our life, that godliness is, is seen by our contentment in these seasons, and that this world may see that there's a difference, that there's a change in us, that they may see Christ, that they may bear fruit that is glorifying to your name. God, again, this is only something that can be done and accomplished by your strength, by your life in us. May you convict us to open our hands, God, and allow you to build, allow you to plant, and allow you to cultivate even in this adversity that we may find ourselves in. It's in your name we pray. Amen.